back to Intrigue Explained, the show where two former Australian diplomats who now explain things for a living try to shine a light on international relations by basically just arguing about it in a manner that I think will just continue to grow more and more deeply personal <laughs> over time. Joining me is someone with fed several federal arrest warrants, I can only assume, my intrepid co-host John Fowler. How dare you? What a what a slight to start off uh, start off the podcast. I, I didn't say in which country. You know, there are certain countries through, from which an arrest warrant might be a blessing on your uh, record. Well, that's true. A badge of honor. That's true. It's fair enough. Let's say North Korea and Russia. Speaking of arrest warrants, you're in the US, I presume. It's hard to keep track of where in the world you are at any given day. You seem to be sitting comfortably in your office, but I assume that is a green screen as you are waging pitched battles to try to liberate the former president from prison. Has civilization collapsed on the back of the indictment? <laughs> you know, one of the things I've always said to people <laughs> who questioned my move to the US, uh, you know, not without, not without reason, was that it's just, it, it's really overblown how much people care about this stuff in the day to day. Like, you know, you can walk into a shop or you can have neighbors who are completely different political spectrum to you. And then, you know, no one, no one, makes it a massive issue the the hundred people on the street in new york protesting his arrest or the 500 people that are outside mar-a-lago are really just the extreme of the extreme but they're the ones who make the make the news coverage everyone else goes about their business just just like any other country right is this like a twitter bubble thing where if you read twitter you just think that the entire nation is consumed with something i yeah i think that's exactly the dynamic that's going on i think it's more of a 24 7 media bubble i think it's bigger than just twitter it's kind of if you tune into any kind of news channel or even the new york times yesterday it was wall-to-wall -wall coverage which again mm -hmm. understandable because it is you know definitely news former u.s president first to be indicted all of that kind of stuff but the, the as you framed it the pitch battles the anger the kind of vitriol that you, you know you'll every so often on twitter you'll see a, a walmart you know iphone video of someone losing their mind and beating someone up <laughs> because they love trump so much or whatever or they hate trump so much um you know that's just not how things go <laughs> so, so given that would you say that it would be useful if someone were to create a daily newsletter that summarized big stories like that in, at a volume that like a normal person could consume john so something that sort of cuts through all that noise and, and just gives you what you need to know. Is, is that what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, maybe something that like was written by people with expertise in the subject matter that yeah. was like a little bit fun, a little bit funny, but still insightful. Well, you know, great idea. I'll get right on that. Um, I'll, try, I'll, I'll, ch I'll change international intrigue to be that. <laughs> For those who haven't joined us before, that was the world's most contrived plug of the newsletter that really informs this show. It's called International Intrigue. John and his co-founders and his staff produce it every day to drop into your inbox. And we really can't recommend it highly enough. It's what I read to prepare for shows like this and to pretend to be smarter than I really am. That's, that's the goal, is to make people appear smarter than they really are in front of their bosses or the general public. Dinner party guests as well. Key demographic. We are there to help you feign intelligence. Exactly. What, what is it to be alive in 2023 if not to project knowledge and confidence above your actual abilities? <laughs> uh, says, two, says, says two white guys, by the way. Yeah, I might just have that as a banner floating over the video says recording of this. <laughs> yeah, or just like record a loop of some voice pointing that out that just plays every 15 <laughs> seconds over the podcast. Like yeah, we just, know. And just tap the sign. 
<laughs> well, yeah, exactly. We're terrible, but we're self-aware about it. So on this week's episode, our big debate topic is all about the United Nations. It was spurred by the Russia, uh, Russia taking up the presidency of the UN Security Council, which led a lot of people to go, wait, what? And that doesn't seem right. And so something that I wanted John and I to explore through the medium of yelling at each other is, okay, well, what are the pros and cons of having a belligerent in a position like being on the UN Security Council or being chair of the UN Security Council? Or what is the, what are the pros and cons of having a country with an incredibly dubious human rights record be on the mm. Human Rights Council, for example? I've been a UN delegate in the past. John has worked in diplomacy for much of his life. So we hope to bring a little bit of insider perspective on this and try to, as always, steel man the issues. But before we get to that, John, was there anything in Intrigue this week that you thought was particularly worth putting on people's radar? Yeah, I think one of... It's been going on for a, a little while now, obviously, but I think the biggest story that... It's been covered, but I think warrants sort of a bit more of a chat is... Finland's accession to NATO, which I think everyone will be aware of, has happened now. And it officially happened on Tuesday of this week. And the final stumbling block or potential stumbling block was Turkey allowing or agreeing Finland to join NATO. And that happened late last week when the Turkish parliament approved it. I think there's a couple of things to note here. The first obvious one being that now Russia has almost doubled its border with NATO. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm intentionally using the active language there saying Russia's done this because I do think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has prompted oh, this. Yeah. If that had not happened, this would not have happened. So Russia has succeeded. There's, there's literally a word called Finlandization, which literally right. refers to their not being in this sort of position. And now they are. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing to note, right? Like it's that Finland since Finland and Russia went to war. And, and since then, Finland has been assiduously careful to maintain neutral relationships with Russia to make sure they don't piss Russia off while kind of being a Western country. But obviously Ukraine changed all that. So, I mean, that's the first thing to note. Russia's doubled its border with NATO. It's kind of now about, I think, 3,000 kilometers long rather than 1,500 odd it was before, you know, rough figures, which can only be interpreted, I think, as a huge own goal from the Kremlin. Um, you know, the giant, the giant galaxy strategic brains of the Kremlin who try to present that they know what's happening, uh, you know, 10 moves ahead. <laughs> Uh, I think it's been shown up by that, right? Yeah, uh, I know we say this a lot, but they are so bad at statecraft. It is remarkable. Just the sheer volume of own goals that they have kicked in the last couple of years, one after the other, to effectively just alienate every potential ally, move a lot of people in the neutral column into the potential adversary column fail to utilize their leverage it's it's incredible to watch in mm. in the like you know when you have a field and you're not quite sure if it makes a difference if you're good at it or not you're just like oh maybe just stuff just happens like oh no right. no diplomacy is hard and some people really suck at it and this is what that looks like Exactly. It's noticeable when it goes poorly rather than when it goes well. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's most clearly like, oh, I see why it matters now because this kind of, ha this kind of stuff happens when you are terrible at it. And I, and I, and I, I don't think it's that surprising that Russia's terrible at it. I mean, their whole state apparatus is designed around security and bravado and military and anger and, you know, bloodshed and everything and has been since 
you know, well, let's let's just be generous and say at least since the kind of Georgian Wars in in the you know 2008 or whatever that was. So it really isn't surprising to me, but it can only be seen as an own goal. And I think it's interesting to sort of say that you know after the fall of the wall of the Berlin Wall, Russia and Finland had that relationship I alluded to, where it was kind of like Russia was like you know we see a friend or at least a partner we can work with in Finland. Don't join NATO because that would make us see you as an enemy. They threatened blood and thunder if they joined NATO at the start of the Ukraine war. They've joined NATO despite the threats. Russia's tried to downplay the fact that they've joined NATO. It was like, guys, we meant this the whole, like we knew this was going to happen. It's no big deal. <laughs> but you can kind of see that, 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 that there's a lot of like rhetoric coming out of Russia now of like, oh, it's a, it's a huge threat. But I think they'll be pretty keen to like pretend it never happened. And it just, again, it kind of comes back to so much of the commentary around Russian statecraft and, and Russian actions is we tend to blow them up as hyper-competent in our own minds in part because there is uh, a faction in our own politics that likes to contrast them as hyper-competent with what they see as an incompetent or weak West. And I think it's useful to get these reminders that actually often these guys screw up massively because they're just not that good at this and not nearly as smart or capable as we think they are. Yeah, and I I do think it's important that you kind of assume that your enemies do know what they're doing because the opposite is is complacent and lazy and ends up in being things like what Russia did to Ukraine, being like, oh, they're idiots, they don't know what they're doing, invade, whoopsie-daisy, we're the ones who are the idiots. But anyway, um, I think the last last thing I wanted to note was I, I read a headline in the Wall Street Journal yesterday which basically just said this... And the reason I guess I wanted to flag it as, as something that's worth a bit more of investigation is that th- this opinion piece in the in the journal said that it's Finland joining NATO. Because Finland has a huge army, right? Given its size, yeah. because of the threat of Russia over the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's developed a really effective, really elite modern fighting force that you wouldn't expect from a, you know, a friendly northern Scandinavian country. And the, the journal said basically it's the last comparable boost to Western security in terms of like ability, firepower, what they bring to the table was when West Germany joined um, the mm. West in in 1955 so that kind of gives you some perspective on how big a deal this really is for nato yeah um absolutely i think it's i mean the Finns take security incredibly seriously they have a massive artillery force the only time in the last century a Finn has smiled is when that white (laughs) death sniper was racking up his like 57th red army kill like this is this is a really serious country that brings a hyper competent military force into NATO. Now, mm-hmm. of course, it is worth saying any direct military confrontation between NATO and Russia would, on the conventional side, we now realize would be an absolute whitewash to NATO because the Russian army is incompetent and struggling to defeat Ukraine, but would escalate to nuclear arms and probably lead to the end of the world. So, I mean, how much does this really change reality on the ground? Not so much, but I think it's clear. Did, did Russia want Europe's largest artillery force now in an Article 5 alliance to defend other NATO powers on its border? No, it did not. And now it's happened. And I think it's big. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's a, it's a big story and it's getting the coverage it deserves, I think. Mm, agreed. All right. Well, given that you're an equally avid reader of uh, international intrigue, what stood out for you from our state last five or six days of coverage. Is there any story that you think deserves extra mention? Yeah, so this is something you folks teased and and you wrote that it was happening, but I think you're still in the process of doing a deeper dive. And that is the French Uh, president's president's visit to China happening as we speak. 
Mm-hmm. And it jumped out at me for, for a bunch of reasons, but mostly because I think it highlights the really weird place we're in vis-a-vis whatever you want to call it, a new Cold War, these tensions between the West and China, in that we are clearly not yet at the point of truly Cold War politics where any kind of engagement is verboten. And especially Europe, while increasingly expressing concerns about China, certainly wants to keep one foot in the cordial relations camp. And for me, this kind of visit uh, is emblematic of that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the hullabaloo around it really does suggest that we are in a different, that this is not normal in the sense that this is not like, if President Macron visited India, would it have made intrigue would we be talking about it would we be debating it i think he did late last year if i'm not massively incorrect and I, and, I, and it wasn't a mass i mean it was a story of course but it wasn't a massive story whereas kind of directly interacting with g is seen like a real geopolitical event uh so i think that for me just kind of emphasized even our reaction to it mm. emphasized the the kind of place we're in I also think he, he's copping some flack. I think his line to Xi on the Ukraine war was something, and I'm paraphrasing here, was, I know I can trust you to bring Russia to the table and help us resolve this piece. Something, something to that effect. And he's been slammed as naive for saying that. He's, mm. been, he's been attacked. You know, I don't, I don't consider myself a, a dove on the Ukraine issue by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think I was allergic, as allergic to it as other people were. And I'm interested in your take. Uh, yeah, I think, I think everything you just said is absolutely right. I think it's, I think also the thing to mention too is that it's always good to have multiple countries, Western countries, presenting the same argument and not just the US. China has spent a lot of... Mm-hmm time domestically vilifying the us so there isn't a lot of credibility in the us uh, in china about what the us has to say like if, if this was a message to be delivered by blinken or biden i think it would be you know the chinese state media would have almost no choice but to kind of discount it a bit china still mm-hmm. wants to work with europe wants to work with france sees them as more amenable to china's interests so i think it's important that this a very similar message i don't send arms to russia ukraine war is russian aggression it has to stop, but it can't. The peace can't be on Russian terms. You know all these kinds of messages, which China won't agree to necessarily. But hearing mm-hmm. it from a bunch of different countries, some of which it wants to have productive relationships with, I think is helpful. And then I think the second thing that I found interesting is that Macron is going through some difficult times back at home. Right um, in the lead up to the election, he he made a big push to try and present himself as the negotiator between Russia and the West, which which a lot of people saw as kind of his his attempt to rise above the fray of domestic politics to kind of de gaulify himself as this kind of international statesman who was above the fray of french um, french political kind of machinations we know that the protests this year have gone pretty badly for macron in in terms of his popularity at home so there's an element i don't think it's the driving element but there's an element that his kind of statesmanship is an effort to Mm -hmm. rebuild his image so yeah but i think you're exactly right it's a big it's a big story we haven't covered it yet because we haven't seen what's come out of it i think he's still there giving speeches and all that kind of stuff um and we always like to give these news topics a couple of days of air to breathe like a fine wine so that we can try and pull out some of the the deeper threads rather than just being like oh my god he gave this speech oh my god he did this so yeah waiting to find out if this story is corked (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Right. That's a, that's a good analogy. <laughs> I, I will say, though, I think, again, in Macron's defense, and I think to, to back up something that you said earlier, the only way this this war ends is Putin eventually deciding to end it. And it's about how many things can you stack onto the equation encouraging him to do so right and there's an element of sanctions to that there's an element of ukraine taking back territory and frankly just really mauling the russian army there's domestic pressure and then there is international pressure and china seems to be about the only actor where you can conceivably see they say something and he at least way. Oh, 100%. seriously considers it. Well, I mean, Russia is a junior, a junior little partner to China now, so he, he he's the kind of almost like a vassal, but not quite. I think that I, one last point I wanted to make too is that centrality of Beijing to this, which is what they want, right? Beijing wants to be mm-hmm. like you, you come to us and pay us tribute, and we decide who we tell what we what we tell you know what messages we tell to. But Saudi Arabia, I'm not, I've got the Financial Times open right now, and Saudi Arabia and Iran are holding a meeting in Beijing at this very moment while macron is presumably there or he may have just left but this is the idea that everyone's coming to beijing to kind of court their influence because they are probably the only one the only credible country now of significant power that can talk to russia that can talk to europe that can kind of thread that needle now i don't think that means that they're going to be a credible negotiator when it comes down to it but it's clear that they are positioning themselves as that kind of keystone in in world affairs yeah and i think honestly in some ways that that's quite a positive potentially because it is one thing to have people come to beijing but then the expectation is that they have constructive talks while they're there that lead to outcomes if the the criticism that a lot of people were leveling against china historically was you don't like the role of the US in the world order, you don't want a US-led world, but when are you going to step up Mm -hmm. and demonstrate some genuine leadership? And if the incentives are for some sort of constructive leadership for China, one could argue that is better than kind of negative incentives to just criticize what the West is doing and stir trouble in the US-led order. This is me trying to gild the lily. I was gonna say, in in my case, that's very much a careful what you wish for because i i, I don't know that, yeah i don't know that anybody with um well, i mean i shouldn't say this I, i'm i i have my views on china but there is a, a as equally a strong case to say that china isn't necessarily the best faith negotiator in this stuff and will always be trying mm-hmm. to um seek its own advantage which you know that's that's the nature of international relations it's it's, it's the way it goes on that question of the the nature of international relations uh and it's since so we well. are already basically debating it's uh Time to segue to our main topic for the podcast. Should bad actors be allowed on UN bodies? Now, I want to set this up just a tiny bit. As I said, we decided to talk about this because Russia on, I think, Monday took up the chair of UN Security Council, of which they are a permanent member, uh, which led to some raised eyebrows around the world. As always with one of these things, we will each take a side of this debate, not necessarily the side that we 100% uh, agree with. I think both John and I are reflexive cowards who caveat everything we say with 37. That's true. Diplomatic habits die hard. <laughs> exactly, I- I- exactly. 
You will never find out what we actually believe in and we like it that way. But we will do our very, very best to present both sides of the case as strongly as we possibly can. I will also say that one thing I wanted to move off the table for this is the legal feasibility of removing mm. a bad actor. Because I don't think that necessarily... Just the fact that there is no legal architecture to remove a bad actor doesn't necessarily mean they should be there. And I think it is worth exploring as a philosophical question and a political question mm. whether it is good for these countries to be there or not without kind of getting into like what are the mechanisms because in most cases there are none but you know maybe if people felt strongly enough they could you know we'll start our own casino with blackjack and yeah but is it, you're right it's a, that's a dip, it's a different it's, it's a separate question that I think is a very interesting one, but not necessarily, well, not necessarily productive for a conversation more about, as you said, like, it's almost like the political, what we're trying to tease out in this conversation is the political justifications, almost like the moral authority that the UN has, if it does or doesn't include Russia in these kinds of forums, I guess. Yeah. We're going to focus a bit on the UN Security Council and the Human Rights Council, but really I think you could extend this argument to a Across lot of bodies. Yeah. You know, should massive polluters be on UN environmental bodies? Right. Like there's, the UN is big and filled with sin, much like myself on both counts. <laughs> I thought you were going to pivot to the casino <laughs> reference there, but you, you went the self-deprecating route. Nice. Well, I tread the road I know. <laughs> So for this one, uh, John is going to defend these states remaining on these bodies. And I am going to attack him with all the righteousness I can muster and perhaps throw in some, some logic as a bonus. Is there anything you wanted to say by way of opening remarks? No, I, I think it's up to you to make your case that these, that, that, that countries like Russia, I mean, and, and we're going to focus on Russia because it's the thing that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it could apply equally to arguments against any country violent, you know, Syria, if it was rotating through the Security Council, when it was, you know, gassing and killing its own people, or, you know, there's any number of things this could apply to. But I think make your case that Russia shouldn't be on the, per I mean, it's also a P5 member, we, we should say to, to folks listening, yeah. like it's a, it's a permanent member of the UN Security Council, it has a veto. So it really has an outsized influence on what the Security Council, what the UN can achieve. So why don't you tell me why you think they should be booted off or at least removed. Sure. So I think I'll be making an argument in kind of three different, three different streams of argument here in a optics and perception bucket, mm. a moral and ethical bucket, mm. and a kind of effectiveness of the system bucket. And those all it. kind of overlap. These are, these are sort of, I recognize these, are, these aren't going to be clean divisions, but I thought I'd throw these at you one at a time and just get your reaction. Mm -hmm. Let's start with, with optics and perception because the UN, this is, my, this is my pitch, the UN not generally empowered to do all that much in terms of what is the UN's general kind of its strongest card to play. I would argue that the moral authority and global leadership of the UN, it's probably the biggest arrow in its modest quiver. Most of the time, it can't really deploy troops. It can't, it's not itself authorized to do too many sanctions. But what it, it can do is a bully pulpit approach to saying this is not right. And we, the international community, say it's not right. 
This is especially true, I think, in bodies like the Human Rights Council, which have virtually no kind yeah. of enforcement authority, but is also true, I think, on, uh, in the Security Council and other places. For me, that is completely undermined when you have belligerents in a conflict that are either on these bodies or, you know, chairing these bodies. How can the UN Security Council, setting aside Ukraine, how can a UN Security Council that is chaired by Russia look at any other conflict in the world and credibly say to another belligerent country, stop doing that, it is contrary to international law, it is a violation of the UN Charter when Russian tanks are streaming across the border? Yeah, so I mean, it's obviously a, a, a fair point. I think the, the way I would argue that it does actually, and actually increases its moral authority is that it says where so, the system is more is bigger, the broader system, the lot, the the architecture is bigger than any single event, um, and as horrific as I mean, I don't think anybody sits there being like, oh well, because now they're the chairman of the, of the Security Council, the UN has sanctioned what's going on in Ukraine. I don't think that's a moral risk. No one thinks it's okay. But if you start reacting based on events and and you know horrific events. And you'll, you, you start to unpick the rules of the game. You lose the moral imper imperative that the UN isn't just a tool for Western control of the global system. So the analogy that I kind of tend to make is, is, a, is a court of law, right? You can have a serial murderer, horrific person in front of a court of law that everyone knows is guilty and everyone thinks them is, is just appalling. But you, the, the court itself doesn't lose its moral authority to make a judgment by listening to the case, by having them, or having them have a lawyer in front of the court making full-throated arguments in their defense. It actually gained its moral imperative because you say, no matter what the situation is, the rules of the game are what are important. The system is what's important. And yes, it's, it's appalling and it leads sometimes to outcomes that we don't like, but that is far better than the might makes right, the, you know, dog eat dog world that would exist without this. Yeah, but sure, we give people their day in court, but we don't put the accused on the bench. We don't put them in the jury pool, you know? But, but I think, but, but if that was the system, then we would, right? The system is that they get a full throat defense. The system is that the rotate, the chairman of the UNSC rotates. And just because there's a system, a situation right now that's going on that's horrific, you don't be like, ah, oh, okay, yeah, but that rule doesn't apply to you because we don't agree with what you did. And also let's remember that a lot of the world doesn't treat Ukraine as appallingly, you know, view it as, as terrible as, as, as the West necessarily does. There are huge swathes of Africa that would go, they got kicked off for that. My God, like what will happen if anything else that we, there's this sense of like, you, you really can't, I don't think that the whole point of the UN is rules that last through time and are meant to be, yeah, not ideal. They don't deal with every situation properly, but they provide stability and structure. And you immediately have a situation now where you're like, oh, yeah, except for when we don't like it, except for when we think it's a bit upsetting and we don't like the moral look of the US, of Russia chairing the UNSC, which no doubt is it's a terrible optic, but it would be worse to chop and change the rules because of that, I think. Yeah, I mean, you could make the argument that the rules are kind of flawed. The for sure. rules were flawed to begin with. So it oh, sounds yeah. like what, what you're saying is is what would be a problem is if we suddenly... Yeah, why not the US for Abu Ghraib, for Guantanamo, for the Iraq war, the unsanctioned Iraq war? 
why not the French for nuclear testing? Why not the UK for, you know, <laughs> everything? It's just, it, 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 there's, <laughs> there's a sense of like, and I, and I really don't, I want to be careful not to downplay the seriousness of the Ukraine war, but I do think there is a sense, and again, take this in the, in the spirit I intended, of it being the current thing. In these countries, the P5 and, and many, many countries around the world, you know, how can you measure the the horrificness that's going on in Ukraine against what's got what what Iraq war was or what's gone on in you know multiple countries around the world Xinjiang these kind of things how can you measure them how can you compare them you can't so I do feel like if you kick Russia off then you may as well just really say that you know everyone has to be kicked off or you're biased or you're clearly saying that this isn't a system that works as a global body of leadership designed to make decisions. It is a Western controlled thing. And then when we don't like it, you play by our rules, which fair enough. I I want to move on to to the kind of moral and ethical side of this, because I want to call you a monster a bunch of times uh, and have it be on the permanent record. But have to take a ticket and form a queue. (laughs) To push back on what you've just said a tiny bit. First of all, I do think you could make the case on the Ukraine question, specifically invasion for territorial conquest is so quintessentially what the UN was set up to try to prevent that I do think it is qualitatively and quantitatively different to countries committing atrocities on their own territory, for example. Not morally different necessarily, but structurally different in terms of the rules of of international relations and just how contrary it is to the fundamental nature of the UN Charter. So I will make that case on kind of the... That's a very, yeah, it's very limited, right? Like you've, you've got a conception there of like invasion and occupation in a physical sense, because otherwise then you've got to say, well, America has invaded Iraq with the express goal of regime change, Afghanistan with the express goal of regime change. And the only difference between that, well, arguably the only difference between what Russia's doing in Ukraine and what the, what those two invasions were about were, one, we agreed with the principle that terrorism is bad because we're in America or we're in the West. And two, there's some sense that America didn't want it to like add it to its colonial possessions. But I mean, that's a very fine distinction when you sit there and say they were in Afghanistan for 20 years, but they didn't want to be. So that's the difference. <laughs> to be clear, I think it would be entirely it would be entirely rational for someone to go something like the Iraq war, which was expressly not condoned by the UN. Yes. Could they potentially have been grounds no. for removal as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Could have well have been grounds for removal. And I think there would have been a, a case to make in, in, in that regard. I will also just slightly push back on this sort of it's just the West. Every UN vote on the Iraq war goes like 140 29 in terms of condemning condemning the invasion sorry the the ukraine war goes 140 29 so there there isn't this isn't just the us and and this isn't an oecd thing right but if you had that held that vote to kick russia off the unsc i think it'd be a very different number that's true i think that 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 i would readily concede but i think at that point uh, in part because it would be this kind of unprecedented situation. And I think, sorry, the, the final point there is I think by doing it, you undermine the whole system, right? Like, that's my point. It's like, I don't disagree with you that it's a terrible look, but you do undermine the whole system because then you do have to kick off the US or you're a hypocrite. And then you do have to kick off China or you're a hypocrite. And then what's the point in having the system? Let's all just go back to the, the good old days where no one talked to anybody and we didn't try to achieve anything. Yeah, anyway. I think there are, I, I do think it's something that really important for people to understand about international relations is that especially when it comes to issues like human rights and international security, 
you simply have to accept some level of hypocrisy because otherwise no one would be able to criticize anyone ever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know who I don't know who's got no skeletons in their closet. Some certainly have more. But there is this kind of assumption Costa Rica that someone can be okay. hypocritical. <laughs> no, I like mean... Lesotho's, Lesotho's doing all right. Like, I don't know. Um, no, it's a fair point. Norway since the Vikings. I don't know. Um, Oil. Yeah. yeah. Just, just having it. Just, exactly. If you have oil, just, you're a bad guy. Like, exactly. That's how we test. Morality is just a drilling exercise. And if you strike black gold, you're a monster. That's really bad news for Texas. <laughs> Just, what are you doing? I'm fracking for morality. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point, though. Speaking of morality, let me put let me put to, this to you. This is kind of a, a moral argument I have seen made that I thought was that struck a chord with me, which is the UN is useless, and given that it is useless, it is objectively cruel that we have this spectacle where the victims of something like the Ukraine invasion are forced to sit there and listen to the chairman of the UN Security Council Babylon about biolabs, call them all Nazis, and say they were begging for it. That it is just an objectively monstrous thing that we are subjecting people to. It is a subversion of everything good and right, and we are doing it in defense of a system that has proven ineffective. Again, I won't win any friends by saying this, uh, Where when I agree with you entirely that it's incredibly nasty to have to give russia a bully pulpit to you know propagate their lies and and hate around you know from from a place that has a lot of moral authority at least you know optically but that's the way things go and i am resistant to making giant changes to structures and organizations based on and i mean this again with with good faith but based on how awful it makes people feel I, you know it there i i reject the idea that this kind of stuff leads to more harm like like encourages other countries that oh we can get away with it i don't think it does anything more than it's a very very awful situation for people to be in but like that is that is the way the world works it is a brutal place and it is a nasty place and like if we start to transpose what i would argue are some you know fairly I'll be careful here, but like some, some ideas that like you are designed to, that you're allowed to have a safe space in international relations, then I just, I don't know where that ends. Whoa, because like, if Ben there... Shapiro? <laughs> Not quite that bad. But then, well, but just because just, just we're a debate podcast doesn't mean you can go all manosphere on me. But the idea that the UN Security Council is a place where you go in and you don't have any kind of awful words and ideas and people... Like that, then you're not engaging with the world. That, that's as simple as that. So what is the point of it? Like, again, I'm not saying that this is, like, it's not okay for Russia to be doing this. It's not a good outcome. But sometimes these things lead to outcomes you don't like. And if you throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you decide to undermine the validity of the whole institution based on individual outcomes that you don't like, and they can be horrific like this, then, then you may as well not have the UN at the, at, the, at the whole time. Like, I really do think the analogy between a law court and this is the one that I, I kind of come back to because it's like, like just because you, you saw someone do it and they're guilty, they still get a trial. Just because Russia has invaded Ukraine and they're horrific, they still become the chairman of the UNSC and they still get to say that stuff because that's how the system works. If you want to get rid of the system, that's another question, right? And what we're talking about 
And I guess what the link that I'm making is that if you kick Russia off, if you remove Russia for this kind of stuff, you are undermining the whole system. And I think the system loses a lot of its efficacy such that it has any, and it really becomes, you accelerate its already pretty rapid decline. What comes next? You better have a, you better have a solution for, we're going to kick Russia off. Yes, we think the UN's outdated. It doesn't have any, you know, meaningful solutions. It leads to these horrible things where it gets to talk to the victims like this. But what comes next? I think b- before before I kind of dig into that effectiveness of the that system, rant. is the system valid question, I did want to sort of switch, switch hats for a moment and add something to what you're saying, which is, I guess, the counter argument is that while it is horrific that the Russian chairman gets to read his awful statement he then has to sit through this, exactly, somewhere this the between whole world. 12 countries being like totally. listen you totally and that that could conceptually be of some value if there was evidence that russia gave a damn about anything it's not about russia it's about every other country it's about every other country seeing a unified uh, well somewhat unified world being like very good, you've had your turn, now sit down and shut up because the rest of the world thinks you're monsters. And that's far more powerful than being like, don't speak, you can't, you, like we're gonna blow up the system to get rid of you because we don't, we don't want you to even have a word. Like allowing them to have that word and then having a broadly unified rebuke, I think is far more powerful. Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly something to the argument that having a series of votes in the UN General Assembly go against them by massive margins, yeah. seeing them not even able to muster unified BRICS abstentions, let alone kind of votes in their favor, undermined their ability to claim that the only ones who support you was the West who wanted to who wanted to wage war against them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Last last thing I want to run by you, the kind of effectiveness argument. Now, in terms of stopping wars that have started and sort of punishing, punishing injustice, the UN's record isn't great. But the few times it has managed to do things have been, you could argue, the Korean War, where there was able to be a UN intervention because yeah. Russia happened to be boycotting the UN that week. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, another just truly, I mean, it was Soviets, but a true masterstroke of statecraft. Going back to our earlier comment, just true genius Whoop- to boycott the thing you have a veto in as it is voting on on a thing you really don't want to happen. Well, to be well, fair, they learned from that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> it only, t- it only took one so. multi-year war. And then the, the first Gulf War was, was another, another example uh, where it just proved that Saddam Hussein just appeared to have no friends whatsoever. Like it was just, just, a true, just a true global pariah. His invasion of Kuwait just left him completely isolated. And so the mm. UN was able to... To, to, to act. Could you make the argument, therefore, that yes, kicking off bad actors, even doing it, especially doing it hypocritically, would leave the UN as a puppet of a much smaller, as kind of the, the body of a much smaller body of powers, perhaps Western dominated, but often that's the only time it's going to get to do anything. Yeah, but I mean that. Yes, so like, is is effectiveness good here? I mean, uh, you know, again, yeah. like a like a, a vigilante group is probably more effective at killing criminals, but that's not the way we decide to organize our societies because that you know it, it, it's if amoral. If we gave and criminals it... a veto, if we gave criminals a veto in court, Batman would be a far more attractive prospect. <laughs> Or at least the well, Justice League. I don't that's, know. That's that's true enough. Um, but to your effectiveness, I, I mean, I think both of those examples you used are 
as much products of the historical context as any example of UN power. I think, you know, the first Gulf War was the end of history, right? Right around this kind of maelstrom of the USSR falling apart and China being, you know, very, very weak. And, and then a very clear violation of sovereignty. It was a very different situation. I think if that happened again now, it would be a completely different result, not because of the facts changing on the ground, but because of the political dynamics changing. But I, you know, I think I think when it comes to effectiveness, the UN has never been an effective body in terms of getting things done. That's not really its purpose. It's may, it may be what it was sold at, and maybe what you, you learn in, you know, um, international relations one hundred and one. But it's it's its purpose, as you alluded to at the very start, in my view, is its moral authority, is its inclusiveness, is its ability to take the temperature of a broad swathe of the globe that largely gets forgotten in, in great power politics. And when it makes a decision or when it does get its limited things done, it carries a great moral authority because it is the collective decision of the world, essentially. So then it makes very, it, to me, again, it's a feature on a bug that it isn't very effective at going to war. It isn't very effective at doing things that are deep. I mean, it's a fundamentally conservative institution by nature because big changes shouldn't be made uh, very often, I guess, is the is the argument I would make. So if you then, if you kick out Russia, you kick out, let's, let's say in your hypothetical, it becomes a far more Western dominated or even Chinese dominated or one block dominated organization, it has... It becomes essentially just like a a regional alliance that is going to prosecute its national interest and it loses all its moral authority and just becomes a powerful tool to affect one country's or one bloc's views. And and that's not what the UN is. The UN was really conceived to be a global voice and decision making forum, such to the extent they can make decisions, but at least they get to have a conversation. Uh, so it wouldn't be the UN, right? You might be called the UN, but it would be it would be I don't know, like the NATO allies plus. or yeah, exactly. Yeah. NATO is a bit, that it would be NATO, really. Yeah, um, I think that's that that's sort of a good place to begin to begin summing up. Uh, well, can I add to that? One one more point. Sorry, I mean you'll have to work hard to shut me up on this one. It's an interesting topic to me, but I think the other thing that we're we're kind of glossing over intentionally is that a lot of the UN's work is in the spaces that no one gives a shit, right? Like it's it's the unified unified standards for sms text messaging across borders and like the how we're going to manage satellites and like all this kind of like stuff that no one cares about that if you didn't have that hierarchy that overarching kind of global body a lot of these like actually are boring but very very crucial almost like logistical link up questions wouldn't be solved because they wouldn't have people in the room to be able to solve them if you get my point yeah, and I think that is a that is a really important point to flag here, which is you can't talk about this in a vacuum. If yeah. you any scenario where we start kicking countries off the UNSC probably leads to them also storming out of the UN General Assembly, which leads to them storming out of the Universal Postal Union, right, um, and taking a bunch of and, countries and with suddenly them, mail, and taking countries with them. And so there is a there is a technocratic and a keep the wheels on the bus argument to be made here that is separate from these kind of moral arguments about the UN as a thing that does a lot more than just global security and right. human rights. It's an argument we haven't had time to explore. No, and, the, and the distaste of having what you described as, you know, Russia making statements and yelling and, and you know, all that kind of stuff is almost the cost you pay to have at least functioning stuff out of the media glare that just gets gets on with it. You know, at the end of the day, 
Russia is still a big part of the world with, with its linkages to the rest of the world and its alliances or its friendships. And you kind of need those countries to play nice on the, as you said, the bureaucratic level. But anyway. For me, a lot of this, a lot of this comes down to this question of, do you think on, on the high level, on the Security Council, the Human Rights Council stuff, do you think the unpleasantness of having them there is justified by the value of having a system with any kind of credibility at all mm-hmm. or of an inclusive system? Like, are the conversations worth the unpleasantness is kind of the meta question. Right. The second one is this giant architecture, this giant intergovernmental architecture that we have built is quietly integral to so much of the world's function that is even if you decided that you wanted to excise the these kind of tumors on the body politic to use an unpleasant metaphor it would be very difficult without killing a bunch of the organs that aren't as problematic yeah i agree that's a very fair summary i think i mean and again you could talk about this for hours and there's so many different takes and uh, but I think that's a fair summary. I, I think where, where I would leave it is to say I completely understand people's frustration with the UN. Oh, and yeah. Because it is, you, you don't get to call yourself the UN Security Council and then just go, well, and then just tut at, uh, sorry, be vetoed tutting uh, at an invasion of uh, a country. Yeah. I mean, it is absurd. Whenever I see anybody sort of tweet, the UN is completely useless, I tend to understand where that sentiment comes from, even if I do understand all of the counter arguments for why there isn't necessarily a path to a better alternative. And it's that, it's that, it's analogous to that famous, I think it was Churchill quote, where it's like democracy is the worst system of government except for all the worst. The UN is the worst system of global government, except there's none other. <laughs> There's none other, and there's never been any other. And, 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 and realistically, there won't be any others. Any, any, not in our lifetimes, no. I don't think, anyway. Not, not until the chips that Bill Gates has put in all of our bloodstream activate. There you go, an AI, AI global governance system. Oh, That's a, exactly. A nice thought. I, I would also, it's always useful to remind people, we've only been trying to do global governance for like, depending on how you count it, 100 years out of, I don't know, 10,000 years of recorded human history, we've never been able to come up with international structures or laws that can prevent a superpower or really just a powerful country from doing things it really wants to do. And so there is unfortunately an extent to which you have to grade the UNSC on a curve, Mm -hmm. which is they are trying to do something that's never been done before and wasn't done before for a reason, because it's really hard. And has stopped. A world war since the last one like you know eight years of relative global peace obviously there's horrific regional conflict but it was kind of set up to make sure those things never happened again and on that curve so far so good but we'll see i mean i also have this rock that's prevented tiger attacks on my home John, i'd like to see this and rock. i will sell it to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 good point on that note, I think it's it's a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for, for bearing with us on this episode of Intrigue Explained. We hope you found some of the discussion edifying and useful. As always, if you want to get back to us, we would absolutely appreciate your insights, ideas for topics we can Questions, debate yeah. next week. God, it's hard coming up with them. John just agrees with me on everything. It's, it's really difficult. <laughs> 
we would love for you to recommend the podcast to others who might like it. And as always, sign up to the International Intrigue newsletter. It really is fantastic content in a much more concise format. And if you want more of a podcast fix, Intrigue Out Loud, hosted by uh, International Intrigue's own Ethan, who comes with a absolutely silken radio voice. You mentioned this so often that I'm, I'm, I'm starting to have questions, Gregory. Uh, listen, it's just the inadequacy just hits me every time I listen to it. <laughs> I, I know that feeling. I just, I, I just want to get one of those AI things where I can just type and Ethan's voice comes out. <laughs> really leads gravitas. No, we can't recommend it enough. It, Ethan and John dive into some of the international intrigue topics, but then also Ethan conducts interviews with really fascinating people. And uh, tomorrow, so we're, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, tomorrow we've um, we've recorded an interview with Dave Sharma, Demetra, who you will be oh, aware wow. of. Yeah, so Dave, Dave is, for those who don't know, he's a former Australian ambassador to Israel and federal politician. Um, and it's a great conversation. He's a, he's a, he's a really top 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 mind so it's a, it's a good one so you should all listen to that thank you very much for listening please drop us a like and subscribe if you liked what you heard and we will hear you next week thanks so much everyone i'm dimitri and with me is john thanks everyone